This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. You can never hear too much climate change coverage. If you doubt me, listen to this. A just-released study shows that human-induced climate change affects 85% of the world's population. Let that sink in. 85% of everyone on planet Earth is touched by climate change. So those are the stakes. Now let's have an environmental justice conversation that's grabbed Capitol Hill's attention. Congresswoman Lauren Underwood, who's co-chair of the Black Maternal Health Caucus, has sponsored a bill that's working its way through Congress. It's called the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act of 2021. Years of research reveals that climate change and environmental racism have harmed the health of black pregnant women at unacceptable levels. Karen Weigert, who's our sustainability contributor, is executive vice president of Slipstream, a clean energy innovation nonprofit. She's also the former chief sustainability officer for the city of Chicago. And Karen brought with her a special guest, Dr. Rupa Basu. Her team's research not only helped power the Black Maternal Health Momnibus Act, but also legislation recently passed in California. Dr. Basu is chief of the Air and Climate Epidemiology Section at the California EPA's Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment. We'll hear from her shortly. But for Karen Weigert, the sense of urgency is real, and the time to deal with this issue is now. Well, the timing is critical for the legislation that you're talking about here, which is essentially a national response, but it's also critical in a global context. At the end of this month, the countries of the world are going to get together at the U.N. climate talks. This is an event that was postponed because of the pandemic. This is when countries should assert their higher level of ambition to reduce the carbon emissions that are driving climate change. And we'll have to see where they come out over the next few weeks because the projections now are that the climate is continuing to deteriorate. But what was also interesting about the timing right now is that yesterday a global letter was released from healthcare organizations and healthcare workers that says the climate crisis is the single biggest health threat facing humanity. And when you think about 450 healthcare organizations representing 45 million workers saying that right now, while we're still in the midst of the pandemic, it's profound. Yeah, the single biggest health threat. There's a lot of people that I just don't think realize that. How do these themes play out in the cities, Karen? Well, one backdrop for cities is always the question of emissions. And residents of cities in the U.S. actually use less carbon per capita than people who don't live in cities. So it's always important to start with what's driving this. But then you look at what plays out. And what's interesting, actually, is in this letter from healthcare workers and healthcare organizations, they highlight multiple impacts of this changing climate, from disrupted food systems to air pollution, but also to those disasters that catch the news more regularly, wildfires, hurricanes, and heat waves. And in Chicago, we are far too familiar with the heat waves challenge. So we're looking at a situation where cities 
often experience what's called urban heat island, where warm air is retained in the city. It's released at night, mm-hmm. so it's warmer in the city, and then certain parts of the city are hotter still. So the urban heat island is an explicit way where cities face different challenges from climate. Dr. Basu, let's bring you in here. Why does this issue matter to you? I'll start with a couple of personal stories because this is a real personal issue. And I really like how uh, we tied in the global effects of climate change because it is a global problem. I grew up in California, but I visited my extended family every few years in India. And I noticed that the air pollution and heat in the larger cities especially were often unbearable. Mm -hmm. And I even developed asthma. And I don't generally have any respiratory issues. And I connected those symptoms with the high levels of air pollution and extreme heat, or uh, maybe even a combination of those two. Mm -hmm. And I haven't done any research on this topic in India specifically, but whenever I'm conducting our studies in California or even throughout the U.S., it's really important to consider vulnerable populations and think of the public health implications of our research to other populations globally. Go ahead and tell us a little bit about your professional background then. Sure. I'm an environmental epidemiologist. I received my PhD degree in epidemiology from the Johns Hopkins University uh, Bloomberg School of Public Health. And it wasn't until actually doing my dissertation project that I was able to actually study heat. At the time, it was a couple of decades ago, but we really thought that the elderly were the high-risk population. We didn't really consider other high-risk populations that we know about now, such as infants, young children, pregnant women, um, people with other underlying health conditions, such as cardiovascular, respiratory, um, liver and kidney disease, diabetes, and even mental health. So even though I didn't look at pregnant women specifically yet, we did some studies focusing on the elderly in the U.S., and that really made us think about other vulnerable populations. All right, so let's dig into some of that then, what you learned about specific impacts on pregnancy and specifically about black maternal health. How did you get the idea to conduct this particular research? Was any of that personal? Again, that's another personal story. As I said, I've been studying uh, the thermoregulatory process in the elderly. And when I was pregnant with uh, both of my kids, I actually felt a little bit warmer than usual, even in air-conditioned environments. I felt like I couldn't really control my body temperature. And it kind of like clicked for me that this is what I've been writing about, this you know, inability to control body temperature. And I thought, well, we have the data in California. We have birth certificate data. We have heat and air pollution data. Why don't I just look at this question? The first study wasn't published until 2010. At that time, that was a first large-scale study to look at heat and pregnancy outcomes. And uh, we really found that all women, all pregnant women were at high risk. But what was quite alarming was the disparity by maternal race and ethnic group. So while we found all women, like I said, to be at high risk, the risk for black mothers was almost twice as great. I find this truly fascinating, Doctor. As a reporter, I covered issues related to black maternal health for quite some time when I was in Washington, but never had I connected it to climate change. Why isn't this being talked about more? Well, my hope is that it will be talked about more with, um, you know, some media coverage and also more research in the area and also getting clinicians um, involved and other healthcare practitioners, um, communities and pregnant women themselves. 
we're all seeing the effects of climate change regardless of where we live, whether it's heat or wildfires or drought or maybe all of them, um, hurricanes. So I think with all of these aspects of climate change increasing and increasing quite rapidly, we are going to be talking about these issues more. How do you understand the big impacts of heat on specific populations? Well, what we do is we kind of look at the entire population. So for conducting a study in California, we'll look at the general population. But it's really, really important to look at the most vulnerable population because if we don't protect the most vulnerable, then slowly it trickles down. So if we're not protecting uh, pregnant women or especially black mothers, we're all going to be impacted in some way or another. And as we mentioned at the top, new legislation was passed in California around this issue. You try to stay out of policy discussions, but can you discuss more of that data that you, you found in California? Sure. So most of our studies actually focus on California just because um, we're part of the California EPA. And I will say that our studies, I think, were instrumental in building this legislation, not just for California, but I think also for the U.S. What we're hoping to see with our studies is, of course, more research is always needed. But instead of doing so much research all the time, we're hoping that others take this information and make it useful for clinical practice for policies, even for advocacy. So, you know, when we see a direct connection like this, it makes us feel like our research is actually being heard and it's, you know, worthwhile doing. Uh, Karen, let's bring you back into the conversation. Let's dig deeper into the data here. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'd love to just pull Dr. Basu in to dig a little bit into the length of health outcomes to race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic conditions. What else did you discover? Well, it is true that race ethnicity in the U.S. is connected to socioeconomic status. And uh, while we look at some factors uh, from the U.S. Census that kind of highlight socioeconomic status conditions, we see that association, whether it's poverty, uh, percent white in the household, family income. But we actually see a disparity even among those with the same socioeconomic status by race and ethnicity. So what I mean by that is that it's not really all socioeconomic status that is explaining this difference. There's actually something that is happening by race, ethnicity, maternal race, ethnicity. And what we believe it's even with the same access to healthcare, there's some differential treatment in healthcare, and there's also environmental racism. You know, if you look across the board in all American cities, you're seeing that there's higher levels of fossil fuel emissions, higher levels of traffic, being closer to you know, other uh, contaminants, all that are more prominent in black and brown communities. So it's not surprising that we're seeing these adverse birth outcomes more uh, directly connected to race, ethnicity, but it's not because of socioeconomic status only. So, Doctor, how do both systemic and environmental racism factor in? I want, to, I want us to be clear here. How do they factor into these historic negative health outcomes that we know that black women have had to endure? Right. Well, if you're looking at just these health outcomes without environmental exposures, so the health outcomes that I'm talking about here are preterm delivery, low birth weight, uh, stillbirth. Those are some of the adverse birth outcomes that we have considered in our studies we know that there's already a disparity before we even look at the environmental exposures themselves. Mm -hmm. So among black mothers, there's a higher risk for even infant mortality, low birth weight, preterm delivery, and stillbirth. And of course, these have some short-term as well as long-term implications um, for childhood development, uh, maternal stress, and some uh, neurological issues. 
What are some of the prescriptions, so to speak, or the things that can make it better for pregnant women, particularly pregnant African-American women? Well, I think health education is a huge factor for uh, clinicians, for pregnant women. You know, if you look for symptoms, a lot of this heat exposure is caused by dehydration. So I think a lot of times people look at the symptoms of dehydration, such as vomiting, dizziness, um, you know, all these other factors, but they don't often connected to the heat, uh, the heat exposure, or maybe even just core body temperature being elevated. So as we get better with health education and really make this connection and really look for these symptoms of dehydration, which sounds so simple, I think that we could prevent a lot of these adverse birth outcomes. You've paid attention, doctor, to um, black maternal health really uh, around the country. What have you observed here in Chicago specifically? Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so Chicago is actually just like other uh, U.S. cities are is a, almost the perfect place to conduct these types of studies. Chicago, I think, really caught our attention back in 1995. There was a pretty large heat wave that was attributed to over 700 deaths, and we know that's uh, underestimate just because heat-related deaths as well as heat waves. There's really no systematic definition in mm-hmm. the in the U.S. But because of that, Chicago's really caught the attention of scientists and other groups to create a heat health response plan. And so because of that, they're one of the first cities to create that. And it's been proven to be pretty effective. But when we're talking about black maternal health, that response plan was written quite some time ago and doesn't really incorporate pregnant women as a high-risk population group. And actually, many of the heat alerts also don't include pregnant women. So that's something that we could learn from the research and talk about the importance, particularly in large U.S. cities such as Chicago. Any idea why they weren't included? Yeah, I think it's because, you know, we've had a lot more research probably in the last 10 years. This is a pretty new field in terms of looking at heat and adverse birth outcomes. Like I said, that um, study that I published, uh, our group published in uh, 2010 was Mm -hmm. the first one. And just last year, I was a co-author of this larger study with 32 million births across the U.S. to really look at the review and the consistent evidence. And I think when we're seeing this consistency across the board in different populations, um, different demographics, but still seeing that disparity regardless of location, it's really important to now say, oh, yeah, we can also include pregnant women. It's not just elderly. Um, I Sometimes I'll see infants. I'll see young children included. But pregnant women mm-hmm. uh, are often, just because the research is a little newer, I think, not included. Interesting. Karen, what about your research and, and your observations over the years when you've looked at this issue in, in Chicago, in the Chicago region, really? Yeah, absolutely. In line with what Dr. Wesley has been saying, the understanding of heat is fairly strong in the region, and then the understanding of different outcomes from a health standpoint. You know, unfortunately, we do see very different life expectancy in different neighborhoods in Chicago. But this growing research that helps us connect heat to specific populations that are more at risk, that's new. So while we might have looked at how to make certain parts of the city cooler or looked at how to have cooling centers available if people don't have access to air conditioning at home and to have lists of people to call and contact, this refines it so much more to really understand that there are unique needs during pregnancy and that they're being least met for our African-American residents. Dr. Basu, when you are doing this work, are are there people that you keep in mind? Like, do you have stories or anecdotes about 
communities or, or individuals that you can share? Absolutely. I think it's so important for more women to be represented, uh, especially if we're talking about pregnant women in terms of, you know, healthcare practitioners. There have been a lot of um, stories of people saying, I was trying to get care and I wasn't heard or nobody looked like me or, you know, nobody really believed me until it was too late or things like that. You know, it's really important to also support one another, um, not just the health education that I described before, but to get the support that people need so that we can prevent these adverse birth outcomes, adverse health outcomes as well. Who's top of mind for you, Karen, as you do this type of research? When you look at stories like this, there's that connection of how can we impact the resident so that a pregnant woman can have access to immediate health care? And then you look at the system questions of how can we ensure that the physical environment is as safe as possible and that there are those connections into the healthcare system. But really, some of these questions of systemic racism, they exist in the physical infrastructure and in the cultural infrastructure. And so identifying unique needs, it makes it easier to be clear where we need solutions. Doctor, before I let you both go, for folks who want to know more about your work or maybe they want to get involved, where should they look? For my work specifically, we have you know, several publications in this field. I often use search engines such as PubMed. I know there are others, but to get involved uh, specifically, it's important. You know, all of our studies really look at the larger public health implications. It's important to go back to the community level. We have highlighted a lot of high-risk populations that should be targeted, but I think that the message is often not getting back to those high-risk communities. So even things like uh, when we talk about Chicago specifically, knowing where to go if you don't have access to air conditioners, maybe in your home you can go somewhere else, such as a, a cooling center, helping transport individuals. You know, And then, of course, there's a lot of individual you know, modifications that people can make to their lifestyles mm-hmm. uh, just to decrease fossil fuel emissions as much as possible, if possible, uh, solar panels, using renewable resources, and trying to really limit exposure as much as possible for the high-risk populations. That is Dr. Rupa Basu, Chief of the Air and Climate Epidemiology Section at the California EPA's Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment. She was here with Karen Weigert, who's our former Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Chicago. Thank you both. Well, that's it for today's Reset. For more of our interviews, subscribe to this podcast. And please give us a rating. It helps other listeners find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening. We'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.